Welcome to Hunting Influence, a podcast by Influence Hunter. We share stories from those that have it and those that leverage it to help you develop what we believe could be the most important skill in business right now, influence. I'm your host, Aaron Kostinets. I'm here today with serial entrepreneur, Adam Silverman. Despite only being out of school for a year, Adam has started many companies and most recently started and sold Hot Dot Media. Adam is an expert in all things influencer marketing, but specializes in Reddit and TikTok. His current company, Hot Dot Media, was just acquired by Wonder Gaming, which is publicly listed on the CSE under the ticker WDR. Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. Aaron, thank you so much for having me. I just want to start off with a quick disclaimer that everything I talk about or my own opinions, they by no means represent the opinions of Hot Dot Media or Wonder Gaming as a whole. Um, and besides that, let's jump into the discussion. Yeah, let's do it. So I want to start this out with having you take me back to maybe early days of entrepreneurship for Adam. Is there, uh, was there any kind of companies that you had growing up that you started that uh, made you realize that this was for you? Yeah, for sure. Well, I grew up in a family where both my parents were entrepreneurs. My dad, he had a variety of small businesses like car washes and gas stations growing up. My mom was a realtor. So, you know, my whole life, I always saw this, uh, had this entrepreneurial passion. And I think it really did stem, stem from my parents initially. Um, you know, as early as elementary school, I even had my own small ventures. Um, you know, a friend of mine, uh, Andrew, uh, we actually would buy toys from FAO Schwartz in New York City um, and resell them to our friends at recess. And it was, you know, that's when I maybe got the first bug of entrepreneurship because I saw that you could buy a product, um, you know, if you marketed it properly to, you know, kids who wanted toys at the time, um, you could ultimately charge a premium for that product, especially if it wasn't available in certain markets. Um, you know, that business w- was, you know, obviously short-lived while, while I was in elementary school, but when I transitioned to high school, I actually started a more um, substantial business called Silver Cells, where I would take people's um, products, whether, you know, I would literally sell everything from kitchen cabinets to rugs to Gucci purses and, and really liquidate people's uh, belongings that they didn't necessarily like anymore. Um, and this was my really second um, real venture. Uh, and it, it was a really successful company. It was great because uh, my mom is a realtor. So I was able to connect with a lot of her clients who were downsizing or, um, you know, even sometimes had a family member who passed away and need to liquidate their house. Um, so this was a really cool opportunity to ultimately learn the basics of, you know, commerce as a whole. Um, and even some of the negotiation tactics that I learned, you know, throughout this kind of Kijiji um, and Craigslist uh, venture um, are still relevant today in my, you know, influencer marketing practice, because it really just showed me how to negotiate deals, how to ensure that I'm getting the best price possible for the services I'm offering. Um, and I really look at, you know, kind of these early ventures that I had um, as foundational to, to my career development today. Um, and lastly, I even had some you know, failed ventures along the way. You know, when I was in high school, I, I bought this machine from China that was uh, supposedly able to waterproof iPhones. And this is before the iPhone was waterproof. Um, and you know, throughout that venture, it wasn't necessarily an economic success, um, but I did learn a lot about being passionate about business and, and ultimately working towards a goal that you're passionate about. Um, you know, I woke up every morning for this company, you know, went down to the Eaton Center trying to sell this service, but ultimately there wasn't demand for it. Um, and it showed that I was really resilient. I was really able to get up every day and stand behind something that I really enjoyed. Um, but ultimately, I, I had to eventually hang up the hang up my boots for this uh, venture, if that makes sense, uh, and move on to something that was a bit more scalable in nature. Yeah, I think it's really good to be able to start out a bunch when you're young, kind of learn what's working for you, learn what you're good at, learn what you've done. Even if something that fails like that, you're still getting experience, you know, trying to create a product and going out and selling it. So let's talk a little bit more about Silver Guy Sells. So what did that look like exactly? You know, how were you selling this? 
How are you, how are you selling it to, you know, the people that you were working with? How were you able to get clients despite only being in high school? How old were you when you started it? Uh, it must have been like probably 14 or 15 when I started it. And it was really, it was just a matter of realizing that if you have a lawyer who's making $600 an hour, he doesn't necessarily have the time to go and sell a you know, old ski jacket or a rug of his. And, you know, his time is just so valuable. So when I came to him with an offering where, you know, for only a 30% commission, I would fulfill the entire end-to-end sales process of really selling any product that they needed, any legal product. I'll, I'll make that, uh, you know, I'll point that out. But ultimately, you know, any product that they want to sell, I would then go on Craigslist and Kijiji and make really captivating ads that ultimately drove sales. And then what I would do is every Sunday, I would basically have 10 to 15 people show up at my house looking to buy random miscellaneous items. And, you know, I really did sell everything that you could possibly imagine. I sold kitchen cabinets off the walls. I sold, you know, Gucci purses and really like there's such a diversity in the products I was selling. It really gave me the ability to see exactly how you market certain products towards certain individuals. How long did you run this business for? And did you ever hire anyone else underneath you? It sounds like you had a really good process. And I think a lot of people want to get rid of stuff, but don't want to put in the effort. So I can see why there's a real market for that. What did that look like as it started to grow? Yeah, so I I really never took on anybody else. It was a business I was able to scale, you know, as many individuals were willing to actually offer me their products to sell, I was able to sell them. But I never really saw this as like a long term venture. It was really just something where I saw market demand. And ultimately, I was the person that was able to fulfill that demand. Got it. And when did you decide to hang that up? When I went to university, I didn't necessarily have a client base of, you know, old folks who were making a few hundred dollars an hour and, and didn't have you know, time to sell their own products. So right when I got to university, it wasn't necessarily a business I was able to continue while studying at the same time. So while in university, was there anything that you started there or did you just focus mainly on your academics? For sure. So yeah, I had a few different ventures throughout university. You know, my first one was, it was a product that I'd rather not discuss, but it was a product that is very challenging to market. And it was a a product that ultimately you couldn't go on Facebook or Instagram or any, or Google and market it traditionally. And due to the nature of the product, I had to go and find alternative marketing outlets to actually start selling this particular product. So I looked into, you know, where this product is actually able to be sold. And I found platforms like Reddit, like WeChat, like Quora, that were, to me, untapped marketing resources. You know, you didn't necessarily have to put crazy budgets at the time behind these platforms in order to obtain results. It was just a matter of really communicating effective stories and showing people how they actually needed this product. And this was extremely helpful because it exposed me to kind of every other platform of marketing, whereas traditional marketers are just looking at Google and Facebook and kind of have horse blinders on in in terms of, you know, just solely using the, the basic platforms that exist. So how long did you stick with that? And was that really your first entry into the whole influencer world and these other social media channels? For sure. Yeah. So I ran the business for a few months and I realized it just wasn't aligned with the product I was ultimately selling. So I started offering these types of marketing services to other startups at Western. So I was fortunate enough to be part of the Western Propel community at the University of Western Ontario, which is really just this incubator for student startups. And I had the opportunity to work on two you know, large scale projects there where we launched both a Kickstarter campaign for an energy gum, as well as a food delivery app for on-campus food delivery while I was in university. And these were projects that I supported from a marketing and also product development perspective. And I learned a ton of stuff through these opportunities, a lot of failures, to be honest. But, you know, I came out with it with a solid skill set in marketing. And I was able to transition that to an internship with a company called Bancor in Tel Aviv, 
where I started doing influencer marketing on a more full-time basis. And that's really when I got my first taste of kind of these influencer contracts, what it was like to actually work with influencers and honestly learn a lot of the, the strengths and pitfalls that exist with influencer marketing. Yeah. Now, now both you and I, I think we both always kind of wanted to be entrepreneurs, but we both ended up going to university regardless, even though technically we don't need our degree to start a business. Do you think that going to university helped you or would you have rather started something earlier and gotten more ahead of the curve than go to Western? So I did graduate from the Richard Ivey School of Business and it was an amazing opportunity to ultimately build my network, connect with like-minded folks, and really just set myself a great foundation for business connections going forward. But I will say in my first few years of university, particularly my first year of university, I was calling my mom every day saying, mom, I'm dropping out. I don't need to be here. This is not necessary. You know, why, why am I here? And it was definitely a battle between us. But overall, I'm happy I stuck with it because it showed that I could, you know, even though I wasn't 100% passionate about university at certain times in my, you know, education track, I did decide that, you know, it was amazing that I was able to stick with something and see it through all the way through to execution. And even along the way, I was able to get some scholarships and really be a leader on campus, which I don't think that opportunity would have, it really would not have come if I hadn't kind of been there throughout that time. Yeah. And it sounds like you were still hustling while you were there and making great connections. So there's a lot that it can do for you. It's just about opportunity cost that versus time. So I want to get to Hot Dot Media. So tell us a little bit about, you know, when that actually started, how that came into fruition for you. Yeah, so the way it worked was I, I saw TikTok blowing up as a trend. And, and there was a few different, you know, I would say early iterations of Hot Dot Media before it became official. And I saw TikTok talk blowing up even when it was musically. I saw that, you know, in particular, my sister, she was spending an hour a day just on TikTok alone or musically at the time. And I was just like, the second I saw that there's so much attention going towards this app, it really made me realize that there was immense amount of marketing potential on it. And initially, I'll, I'll be completely honest, I didn't necessarily get that bug. I wasn't necessarily spending an hour a day on the app, but I did see this as, a, as an amazing opportunity. And really, one thing that was one of the big catalysts was I was seeing some of the creators, creators that, you know, I, you know, were some of the first creators kind of on Musical.ly. You know, when it transitioned over to TikTok, I saw their followings grow from 5,000 followers to 100,000 followers to a million followers in honestly a period of one, one or two quarters. So to me, this was amazing, you know, seeing this type of growth, it wasn't natural on Instagram. Instagram wasn't promoting this type of virality. And really, you know, TikTok is just such a content engine. The more content you give it, the more chances you have it kind of succeeding in their algorithm. So when I really saw this trend and really started identifying it, I was lucky enough to partner with two individuals in Toronto, two investment bankers who really saw the foresight of TikTok, saw that it was going to be a prominent player in the media space in the coming years. And I was lucky enough to found a company in early 2019. And since then, we, you know, we were able to sell the company, which has been an amazing opportunity. So you were doing this while you were in school, is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, the groundwork of what we did was all done in university. Uh, I was in my fourth year of studies. And a lot of the work was just, you know, reaching out to creators, seeing what brand deals they had on their plate. It was really creating like a rapport and relationship with these creators. And that has been so crucial. Like, you know, those early stage relationships I made on the platform have really been fundamental to the business as a whole, because, you know, very early on with these creators, you know, some of the creators, even when I reached out to them, even when TikTok had its first initial big spike, we're at 10,000 or 30,000 followers. And I've been with these or been working with these creators now and seen them grow, you know, upwards to a million plus followers and some of them even in the tens of millions. So talk to me about how you actually got into it in terms of like running a campaign. I understand 
you know, you saw musically turn into TikTok. Seems like a huge opportunity. But what were the first steps of actually doing it? Did you get a client and then just try and figure it out on the spot? Or what did that kind of look like in terms of actually figuring out how to run a campaign effectively for you? So initially, I was doing outreach to around 50 brands plus per day. And it was just, you know, constant email messaging, you know, trying to follow up with them, trying to kind of book even just initial discovery calls to see what kind of made sense from their current marketing needs. And this was, for the most part, I'll, I'll be completely transparent with the audience, it was not successful, you know, as a whole. It was really hard to kind of get that first point of contact to actually, you know, book a meeting and actually transition anything from that initial meeting. A lot of the, as you can imagine, two years ago on TikTok, you know, there was not a whole lot of marketers. And when I was going into meetings, you know, with even very small, you know, companies, they were saying, uh, maybe next quarter, you know, maybe we'll, we'll revisit TikTok once it becomes a bit more, once it becomes a bit more prevalent. And so a lot of the time I was getting like a lot of rejections initially. And the big transition happened when I really started leaning on my partners and they, you know, both of them are investment bankers and they were making introductions to companies that they already had relationships with. And this was an amazing opportunity ultimately, because now I was going in with a warm lead. I wasn't going in completely cold. And for the most part, the businesses that they're making introductions to already had an interest in TikTok marketing. You know, they'd already primed them, showing, you know, talking about how TikTok kind of was the future. And that's really how I got my first clients was, you know, through my bankers and, and ultimately, you know, my, my business partners. Got it. So it was much easier once you had people, you know, feeding you warm leads that they'd already talked to and, you know, had the personal relationship with. Tell us about Hot.media. How does it work exactly? So you get these leads from the investment bankers with all these different companies. What does it actually look like? What are you doing in terms of the specifics for these campaigns for these companies? For sure. So one thing, I'll even take a bit of a step back. So initially, when I started doing TikTok marketing, I saw how managers were completely ripping off creators. And the way I look at creators is really as individual entrepreneurs. Each creator, you know, should manage their own business to a certain degree. You know, they might have a management team in place, but I think for the most part, they should choose what ventures they want to be a part of, what deals they want to be a part of. And a lot of times when I was dealing with these managers, they were, the managers were negotiating on behalf of the talent and the talent really didn't have a opportunity or a voice to really say yes or no, you know, I want to go forward with this deal or I don't want to go forward with this deal. And that was, you know, very alarming to me because I looked at these creators, like I said previously, as entrepreneurs, I want to empower them with deals that they were really passionate about. So even in my current practice, we don't sign management contracts with our creators. We work with all of our creators on a per contract basis, on a per deal basis. And this has been crucial to growing our business because I'm all about empowering my creators to grow. The best thing that can ever happen to a creator of mine is saying that, you know, their rate has gone from $1,000 to $10,000 per post because their following has grown from 100,000 followers to a million plus followers. That is what amps me up because it means that we've associated ourselves with great creators who are growing their reach alongside our company. And our model works as follows is that we basically work directly with brands. We then put together a roster for them of the best talent in the industry. And unlike other agencies who are locked into only using talent from their internal network, we will literally go out, we'll message hundreds of influencers trying to figure out who the best creators for particular campaigns are. And then we see the campaigns through from ideation all the way through to execution, as well as helping with TikTok ads after the fact or Reddit ads if they're looking to further promote the content after the content has gone live on the creator's pages. And is this all specifically from the influencer perspective on TikTok or is there Reddit influencers that you work with or how does the Reddit part tie in? 
So Reddit is a distribution channel. So once content is created on TikTok, we can then take that content and re-leverage it and reshare it on platforms like Reddit. And there's a few other platforms as well that we work with. But for the most part, there isn't necessarily Reddit influencers or Reddit creators, but there are moderators for certain subreddits. So we do, uh, we do want to establish rapport with a lot of the moderators for subreddits that we're interested in engaging with. But I wouldn't necessarily look at these individuals as influencers per se. And how many influencers do you usually work with on a typical campaign? So every campaign is different. You know, as you can imagine, you know, we've worked as very small brands, we've worked with large brands, and it just really matters what type of budget they are working with. So I wouldn't say there is like a, a typical, you know, X amount of followers per campaign. But, you know, just from, you know, off the top of my head, the smallest campaign we've done is probably seven influencers and the largest campaign we've done is around 15 influencers for one particular deal. And how long does that, that usually take from start to finish? It's a great question. So we've been working tirelessly to actually decrease the amount of time it takes to facilitate campaigns. And, you know, for full transparency, when we started the business, it was taking, you know, sometimes two to three weeks to coordinate everything to go from campaign ideation all the way through to execution. And most recently, we, we did a campaign where we were able to go all the way from ideation all the way through to posted content in less than a week. So that's, you know, how we're compressing the timeline. And our eventual goal is, you know, we see competitors like PearPop emerging, and we're looking to eventually make, you know, it transactional. We want to eventually have the barriers to be, you know, as simple as four or five emails, where you can go all the way from campaign ideation all the way through to posting on, on a creator's TikTok account. And what are some tricks you have here for, you know, keeping customers happy, and, you know, keeping them coming back? Because obviously, having recurring customers is, is a huge part of, of any agency. So I like to plan campaigns ahead of time where, you know, we could say, you know, we have a campaign set for January, we have a campaign set for March, we have a campaign set for May. And that's a very easy way that we're able to, you know, establish future engagements with the creator. And you know, for particular brands, we will do engagements for Mother's Day and then Father's Day. And it really just all depends on the nature of the client. But really having full transparency with the brands, you know, with TikTok, it can sometimes be a bit unpredictable. The algorithm is really, it's always in development and you don't necessarily know which content is going to explode. Sometimes we have a good, under, a good idea of which content will be the most successful. But I think having a level of transparency with ultimately the brands we work with. And if a piece of content doesn't necessarily succeed as much as we, we hoped it to, we then do a full learning session from it and see exactly why it didn't necessarily succeed. And by going through this in-depth with the brand, we can then take those learnings and apply them to future engagements so we don't make those mistakes again. And you know, that, I think that's been very crucial to kind of maintaining our, our customer base, as well as I will oftentimes like answer any influencer question that comes up. So even if it's not TikTok specific, I've seen every type of influencer contract you can imagine. I've seen virality clauses. I've seen, you know, certain licensing deals. And oftentimes, you know, brands will come to me with just a, a completely random request. I'll answer it. And you're totally pro bono per se, but I, I establish that and maintain that relationship with them. So that down the road, anything influencer related, we're always the first point of contact. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you find it hard being almost somewhat reliant on the extremely unpredictable TikTok algorithm? We've kind of, you know, done a ton of testing here. And usually we have a very good idea of what you'll get from an Instagram influencer or a YouTube influencer. But when it comes to TikTok, the results are all over the board. And usually about, I don't know, maybe you would know the stat better than me, but about one in 10 we found will go quote unquote viral and do way better than expected. So is that tough for you being almost like kind of reliant on something so unpredictable? 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, oftentimes I, I can even explain maybe a bit about the TikTok algorithm, how it works, but the way it works is it will show your con If you post a video, it'll show your content to a group of 10 of your followers. And then based on their engagement, those 10 particular followers, it'll keep on increasing the size of the network that is distributed to based on the interaction with it. So like there's a few tips and tricks that we've been implementing internally to actually increase the engagement of the content that we have posted. Some of it is including auto-generated captions. And if you can imagine, a lot of people are, you know, looking at their phones and don't necessarily have audio on. And this like, little small you know, feature actually has increased our you know, ability to go viral substantially. Some of the other small tips and tricks I could have for you know, any creators listening as well, you know, we post on multiple platforms oftentimes. So we'll take a TikTok and repurpose it for other platforms. So that allows for another chance for quote-unquote virality potentially on Instagram or other platforms as well as we're always working with our creators to find interesting ways in the videos to engage users. So maybe that's, you know, comment a fire emoji or comment, you know, some type of, you know, giving the user some type of prompt to interact with the post always makes them more successful. So these little tips and tricks, these are things we've learned over the past few years, but now we're implementing them into every video and making sure that kind of all of our content has the highest chance of going viral. That's definitely been helpful. The other piece is that if certain content does not perform natively on TikTok, there's always an opportunity to put paid dollars behind it. So the way I look at it is instead of going and getting a you know production studio for you know or producing a, a video piece of content that costs you know five to ten thousand dollars to get a production team, to get a production studio, to rent cameras, to do lighting, to kind of do that entire process. I look at it, TikTokers, as their own mini production studio. So we can basically use creators to create a piece of content. And even if it doesn't necessarily succeed on the platform, then we can put paid advertising dollars behind it and use it as a video asset going forward. And this is all negotiated in terms of license, like when we're doing the licensing part of the contracts. This is another way that we can almost ensure results after the fact, after it's kind of maybe hasn't hit that viral coefficient initially. Yeah, and that's a huge part of influencer marketing for sure is one, you know, their followers are going to see it. But even if it doesn't get the numbers that you're hoping, that's real, usually pretty professional content that the brand can use. And do you guys negotiate that into every single deal? Or are there some influencers that just won't let you do it and you still work with them anyways? So it all depends. Like some of the A-list, I'll be, you know, transparent, some of the A-list creators that we work with, they do not want licensing. You know, they want the freedom to really do any brand deal they want. They don't want to basically tarnish their brand image by associating themselves sometimes with just a single brand. But oftentimes some of the smaller creators we work with are open to, you know, do licensing as long as four years we've seen for a piece of content. So it really just all depends on the influencer specifically. And I wish, you know, we could figure out ways to maybe do revenue share or do, you know, other types of monetization strategies where creators can then own some of the upside of their content going viral or being used in campaigns. But that's something that we're actually working on internally. And I think that, you know, in the next couple of quarters, you're going to see a lot of, you know, work done on that front in terms of giving influencers either equity deals in companies or, you know, further revenue share based on the results that they actually drive individually. And I think you have a really unique pricing strategy as far as agencies in this industry go. Would you be comfortable sharing, you know, what that pricing strategy is, even if it's not the specifics, kind of what that looks like? For sure. So basically a creator will come to me and say, you know, I'm going to use a very simple example, but let's call it a thousand dollars. And a creator says, I want a thousand dollars per video. And what we do is we basically will relay that price point directly back to the brands we work with. And we just charge a small management fee on top of the total budget spent. So this enables creators to feel like they are in charge. We're never trying to hustle creators down to the lowest price possible. It's always creator first. You know, the price that they give is the exact price that they get paid. 
And it really just establishes a great relationship with the creators and the brands because there isn't any, you know, I've seen some deals where creators have their rates marked up two or three times by agencies and then the creator just ends up getting screwed on, on, on the back end. So our whole goal is to really empower creators to, you know, enable them to charge whatever rates they want. And we just pass along to the brand and really give the brands a complete end-to-end tailored solution for kind of all their TikTok marketing needs. Yeah, I think you've taken a real creator-friendly approach, which has probably helped you in terms of building these relationships over the years. So talk to me a little bit about that. What's the hardest part to you about recruiting influencers and also managing these influencers? So yeah, just to clarify, I don't manage influencers. I I just manage deals. So I think that's a very different strategy than a lot of agencies implement. But my whole goal is just to manage deals and bring them to creators that are relevant. And that's, I think, kind of the, that, that's really, it's a bit more difficult because we're just trying to go to brands, trying to get as many, you know, as big of campaigns as possible from brands themselves. But it's really great for the creators because they don't have to necessarily, they don't necessarily have to go out on their own free will and, and message brands. You know, we just bring them directly to them. So I think that's one piece that's, you know, made, you know, at least using our process has made the entire, you know, brand to influencer connection a lot easier and, and stronger as a whole. Is there a favorite campaign that, or you know, a campaign that you've loved that you can share with us, you know, some of the details around kind of how that, how that worked? I think, you know, without getting into, into campaign specifics, I think, you know, it's almost better to think about what creators we like working with. And the reason is because oftentimes if you can find a very great storyteller, an amazing creator, their ability to drive amazing results is really unlimited. So there's one creator that really comes to mind off the bat named Philip Vu, who we've done a bunch of engagements with. He's, you know, we saw him grow from 100,000 to over 500,000 followers on TikTok over the past year alone. And he's just one of these creators that, you know, if he wasn't a creator, he would still be making videos himself. He'd still be kind of filming everything that goes on in his life. And I think when you can have this very organic personality representing brands, it really comes through so organic to consumers. And that's our whole goal. So, you know, creators like Philip are, you know, people that I like to, you know, always try and include on deals that are you know, relevant to his profile. But really, you know, anytime we work with a creator and we establish good rapport and we continue to kind of do deals together that are successful, we always like to try and include them in deals that are relevant to their page. Got it. And, and how has, how have things changed since you've been doing this? It's been, you know, a couple of years and this is like one of the craziest industries where, you know, year over year, the everything looks different. So talk to me about how, you know, the influencer marketing landscape has changed and how your company has been able to adjust over, over the years. I alluded to it earlier, but I think for the most part, it's like now I would say that we have a seat at the table, whereas previously I was always trying to pitch influencer marketing as, you know, this is a new frontier, this is a new opportunity, this is something that you guys haven't necessarily tried out. And now we're going into these, you know, engagements, oftentimes they've already tried influencer marketing, they may have had a failed campaign. They might have had, you know, an influencer that they worked with previously that they really enjoyed or, you know, and vice versa. So I think that is one thing that I think has definitely changed. It's like now I feel that we're not having to do as much explaining in terms of the opportunity that exists. It's more so just selling our services over some of the competitors. And what have you kind of done to stay relevant there and to keep yourself a step ahead of some of the other alternatives? So we're doing a lot on the development front and there's more that I wish I could share, you know, kind of with the podcast, but overall, you know, I think the next frontier is going to be one click booking. It's going to be, you know, a company like myself pre-screening deals for creators 
and opposed to something like pair pop where it's just basically you know if, if a brand signs up they can go and book a creator right away i think there needs to be a bit more of a screening process there and we're building out some tools that are going to be very creator first and ultimately just enable creators to be their own bosses to monetize their channels as they see fit and really work with brands that are ultimately aspirational to them and will that screening process involve a human element to it or will that be algorithm based as well so we have an algorithm that can do a lot of the screening already. So what we can do is we can enter in certain parameters such as location data, demographic information, you know, where the brand is situated relative to the creators. So there's a few data points that we're able to, I would say, shortlist a pool of candidates. But oftentimes I think, you know, it's still best to have a human look over it. So, you know, a lot of it is automated. I would say that 90% of it is automated where we can you know, be able to get down to you know, refine it to a list of, let's say, 20 influencers. But then, you know, the remaining portion is working, you know, with my team to figure out, okay, this creator makes the most sense because of, you know, potentially this video that they launched last week. And, you know, it could tie into the the messaging of, of this campaign as a whole. And really having that kind of personal touch, I, I think is, is still crucial at, at this stage because ultimately humans are going to be interacting with the content. It's not going to be a robot interacting with the TikTok post. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's a lot that you know, robots and, and algorithms can't do yet that, you know, you still need human interaction for, especially, you know, in the influencer world, which is, can be pretty subjective and qualitative. So really interesting. I want, I want to get to, you know, the acquisition that recently occurred. Can you talk to me about that acquisition process and how did that first come about? So I was lucky enough to bring on two business partners who really, you know, we saw the opportunity in the landscape. We saw companies like Enthusiast and, you know, a few other competitors in the space really growing out their media divisions. And, you know, I ultimately want to build a company that was, you know, ripe for acquisition and build a company that had scalability that if we were to a part of a larger organization, we would only, you know, have a rising tide mentality and really bring kind of increase the value of the organization alongside our business. So I was lucky enough to work with these two investment bankers and they really brought me a deal that I would say is perfect from all regards because what we were getting was a technology arm where we now have the ability to launch NFTs. We have a gaming rewards platform or a rewards platform that is going to enable creators that we already have relationships with to create additional streams of income for themselves, as well as, you know, ultimately be a part of a larger organization where there was more heads really coming together to solve bigger problems. So really, it was just a perfect fit. It was amazing. We were able to do almost the entire deal virtually, which, you know, outside of COVID times, I don't even know if that would have been possible. But really, it was just a perfect fit from a management perspective. It completely aligned with John and Mike, the leadership of the team. And, you know, it was just, it was really a match made in the heavens. So when we went to the negotiations, it was more, you know, coming into this as a partner and coming to really grow an entity together, opposed to just feeling as if they just wanted to acquire my business and, and, you know, not necessarily include me in the journey going forward. And was this something you had in mind when you first started and were growing your business that one day you would be acquired? Like, did you have that mindset going in or did this just happen all of a sudden and, and come as a shock to you? I would say a bit of both. A lot of the processes I was building out are meant to be very scalable. So I think that was one piece where I'd always been thinking about who makes sense from an acquisition perspective, you know, 
and maybe even acquiring some businesses ourselves. You know, there's some tech platforms that I've really looked to and thought that these would be perfect acquisitions for our company internally. But really when, when the offer came in, it was just, it was really perfect timing from all regards. I saw what the Wonder team was building. I had a good understanding of where the industry is going as a whole. And really I want to be part of, you know, the rocket ship. I wanted to be part of something that I could see grow from really a small cap company all the way, you know, hopefully to eventually being a much larger company in, in the near future. Super cool. I think it's really rare for, you know, agencies in this industry to be acquired, especially as early as you did. So, so good work on that. But was it like hard to kind of give up control? Because now you're a part of a different organization and maybe they still give you creative control, but it's like obviously going to be a little different now that, you know, you're not just doing this on your own. Was that tough for you? For sure. It's just, you know, in a startup, you can be very scrappy. In the private markets, there isn't necessarily, you know, as much regulation as you can imagine. So a lot of the initiatives that we, you know, previously were doing or, you know, tests that we were doing on kind of an ongoing basis. Now everything we're doing has to go through legal, has to make sure that, you know, we're, um, you know, fully disclosing everything to regulators if there's any big changes in the company. And I think that that is, it's honestly a very great lesson overall, because I hope to be in the public markets for many years to come. And I think getting kind of this foundational experience being part of a public company, even at at the stage of wonder is that it's really just setting me up for success as well as it, it makes me feel that we're all working towards a common goal. Whereas in a private company, you're not necessarily accountable to your shareholder. Well, you don't necessarily have shareholders oftentimes. So or the shareholders might be, you know, members of the board or, you know, individuals within the company. So I think being accountable to shareholders as well is just going to be an amazing opportunity as a whole, because I just want to keep on growing my business. I want to keep on growing the media division now of Wonder. And I'm excited to now be able to sit in the in boardrooms ultimately with companies that I aspired to work with. And I don't think that necessarily would have you know, it might've taken a few more years to kind of get to the point we're at now where I can use basically the management's connections to really establish relationships with A players in the industry. And tell me a little bit about Wonder Gaming and why they're going to be, you know, such a good partner for you moving forward. For sure. So Wonder ultimately has a few different revenue streams, I think are all complementary to our media business. So, you know, they previously have, they created this gaming rewards platform, which is going to be going live in the next couple of months. And to me, this is a huge opportunity because Amazon affiliates, as you can imagine, has been crucial to a lot of these creators actually generating substantial incomes for themselves. And really, I see this as an evolution to Twitch and to, you know, other platforms where all these creators, they want to figure out ways where they can monetize. And I think that the offering that Wonder Gaming's put together is going to be very interesting to a lot of these creators, as well as on the NFT front, NFTs have been absolutely going crazy recently. And we bought a, a company called EGI, which has enabled us to basically white label our own NFT platform for whatever vertical we see fit, or even creator, you know, as they see fit. So I think this could be an awesome opportunity where now the creators that I work with on a day-to-day basis are going to figure out additional ways to actually monetize their channels. They're going to be able to offer digital assets where previously, you know, they might've been siloed to Rarible or OpenSea. Now they're going to have the opportunity to ultimately create their own white labeled site. They can own their own domain and they don't necessarily, they can really keep on working on their own personal brand opposed to almost diluting it by being a part of Rarible or OpenSea or one of these other NFT platforms. That's awesome. It sounds like things will be a lot different now that you probably have like a larger budget and more infrastructure to get some of these initiatives done, which, you know, is every, every entrepreneur's dream, you know, you can kind of be, be still your own entrepreneur, but within the, you know, the boundaries of working at Wonder Gaming. Cool. You know, we talked a lot about, you know, some of the successes that you've had and how you've built this business and got it acquired already, even at such a young age. 
I'd love to know maybe some mistakes and some failures that you've made along the way there. And, you know, is there anything that if you could do it over again, you would do differently? That's a really good question. I think for the most part, it's just you always want to make sure in, in entrepreneurship that you're very confident in what you do. And I think early in my career, there was, you know, sometimes I took on clients that maybe I didn't necessarily have bandwidth for. And this is prior to Hot Top Media, just to be, you know, fully transparent. But I think that, you know, I was always trying to, I was always from leading from a sales perspective, always trying to sell the next client. And I think taking a step back, and this is at least what we've done at Hot Top Media and focusing, you know, heavily on our operations and making sure that those operations are very scalable, that sets you up for so much success. And it, it just makes make sure that, you know, if a large client does come to the table, that you have the bandwidth and the ability to really tailor and create amazing campaigns for them. So that's one thing that, you know, I would really recommend you know, anybody listening to this to think about in greater depth is just figuring out your core operations, what you actually need fundamentally to operate your business and really making sure that it's extremely tight and, you know, well put together so that your offering is extremely clear when you're going to, you know, companies and pitching to companies. Yeah, that's really good advice. I mean, I think every entrepreneur in this space struggles with that because we all want to go and sell. You know, that's the part that's super exciting, but you got to make sure you have your offering down and your offering is super effective because doing it too soon when you're not ready or you don't have the capacity can, can really screw you over in the long run. I'd love to know, since obviously you've learned a lot doing this, if you were starting this business over again today, with a limited budget, knowing everything that you know, what would be the first steps that you would take here? Really, I would start at the same foundational level of relationship first, you know, creating rapport with creators, really ensuring that you know what your creators want. I think that was like so foundational to my business. But really, like, you know, the big thing I would do if I were to go back and do it again, I think earlier on in the process, you know, even, you know, we, we only brought on our first development team about eight months ago. And I think I would have probably started developing out a product, you know, sooner, you know, as you can imagine, developing, you know, very established, um, you know, software businesses take a long time. It takes a lot of dedication and it takes very skilled workers. And I think if early on I could have found a, a co-founder or somebody who is, who's able to really lead from a technology perspective, it would have just brought our, you know, the product that we're still working on to market a bit quicker. And what is one tool that you've used? So like, for example, we use different search engines or reporting tools or email automation platforms to help us. But what's one tool that's been absolutely vital for you in building this business that maybe you couldn't live without? Like, you know, I would say TikTok and I would say that, you know, with a caveat is that we've done some interesting things with TikTok in order to find the best creators. And the way that TikTok's algorithm works is everybody's TikTok profile is wildly different than the next. So we have some, you know, some people's profiles are very cooking focused, some are dancing focused, some are comedy focused. So what we've done is we've actually built these quasi profiles or like, you know, quasi, you know, comedy profiles or quasi business profiles or quasi, you know, cooking profiles. And we started only engaging with content on the platform in those niches. And what it's done is it's almost built a search engine for us for new creators, where instead of having to kind of go through, you know, a single TikTok feed and kind of piece together which creators are best. We now have like a sole, you know, TikTok profile that only is in the cooking niche. And that anytime we want to find new creators, we can just kind of scroll through that and ultimately find the best creators right away. So, you know, it's kind of a little hack. It's not necessarily, you know, a, a piece of exclusive software by any means, but I think it is one of the things that's been so crucial because now we basically have these profiles for each niche and each vertical that we're targeting. And it makes it so much easier, you know, when we're trying to actually acquire new talent. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I guess it's kind of like your own, your own tool in a way. So 
I want to ask you this, my last question as pertaining specifically to your company. Where do you envision the future of Hot Dot Media and Wonder Gaming and your role in it within the next one year, five year, and 10 years? And obviously, you know, who knows what's going to happen in that time frame, but how does that look ideally to you? For sure. So I think the biggest thing that we're going to see changing in the next one to five years is just the speed at which influencer deals happen. You know, in, like, if you think about Google you know, marketing or Facebook advertising, everything is based on real-time bidding. And I don't think there's a reason that real-time bidding can't occur with creators, as long as creators have availability, that is. So I think if there might be the emergence you know, down the road of content production studios where creators are really available at all, you know, within a certain time frame, and that in real time brands can book them out to do sponsorships. So this is something that I think is going to, you know, come in the future. And I hope the Wonder Gaming, actually I know the Wonder Gaming team will be a part of it. So it's just a matter of really decreasing the amount of time it takes to go from campaign ideation all the way through to execution. And our whole goal this year is to bring it down to, you know, from a week right now to, you know, less than one day if possible. Yeah, one day would be pretty insane given how this industry usually works. A lot of back and forth and contracts that need to happen. It can take a hundred emails, I will say. Like I've seen deals take a hundred plus emails to go from ideation all the way through to posted content. And a lot of time, there's a lot of wasted communication there. Whereas if Brands can be very direct with what they want from creators and creators can be very direct with what they want from brands. Matching up those two, really like the two side of marketplace is going to be crucial in the next few years. And, you know, I'm excited to be a part of it and help really bridge that gap. Yeah. Like, do you usually send over like a number of marketing materials just so they fully understand instead of just like doing an intro and slowly, you know, responding back and forth and, and learning everything? Do you ever just send over kind of like, advanced marketing materials with everything that you're expecting? It really all depends on the nature of the client or and the creator we're working at, uh, reaching out to. But for the most part, my biggest you know recommendation is something you know, I do every day is just the first point of contact you can get on the phone or via video is going to make the like the process just takes far less amount of time. Like, if that makes sense, you basically want to get an initial point of contact where they feel comfortable talking to you on the phone, where they feel comfortable you know getting on a video call with you. Every time we're able to kind of in real time, relay our ideas back to the creators, it makes the, the, it compresses the timeline of how long it takes to kind of do these deals substantially. And, you know, some managers are just email heroes and they just love kind of doing everything via email. And I'm totally you know, respectful for that. But I really, you know, the biggest thing that can be done is just to, like just getting that first point of contact and just really making sure that they have a good understanding, you know, in person or over the phone of what you're doing and ultimately how you can help support them. Yeah, super interesting. I'll be curious to see how you're able extremely in that process moving forward. So I want to get to a part of the interview called the quick fire round. So here I'm going to ask you questions that don't necessarily pertain to your business and hopefully you can answer in around 30 seconds or less. Perfect. Let's give it a go. Do you have any morning rituals that you do to kickstart your day? Oat milk, latte, and a double shot of espresso. <laughs> Nothing too crazy. I also drink a ton of water in the morning. So just, I guess overall, just starting with fluids throughout the day. Whose content do you listen to, watch, or read the most? 
there's two podcasts in particular I'm super into. So one's called 20 VC with Harry Stebbings. It's just an amazing podcast that, you know, goes over the VC landscape as a whole, you know, what investments are being made. And it's really given me a lot of foundational knowledge on exactly how to build businesses. And the other one is called Bliss Scaling by Reed Hoffman from LinkedIn. It's just an amazing podcast. The guests they bring on are, you know, A-list entrepreneurs. And I think any, like, it really feels like I almost have a personal relationship with these, you know, guests when they speak. And I think that, you know, oftentimes when I see anybody who's on any of those podcasts, I always try to add them to my network because they really are forward thinkers. What is your favorite book of all time? A good question. I think my favorite book is The Art of War. And why exactly? It's a short read. I read it for the first time on a plane. It just gave me a really interesting perspective on how to think about business dealings and, and kind of how to negotiate in, in an interesting way. And I find that a lot of the learnings from the book are like relevant in a lot of the negotiation strategies that I, I implement. What is your favorite purchase of $100 or less? Good question. It's actually a bonsai. It's totally weird, but I've been like, you know, through quarantine, I got into bonsai and you know, jade bonsais recently, and they're just very great to like watch grow. It's a very slow process. It's something that you have to tend to every day. But personally, I'd much rather have a plant than a pet. And I know it's, it might, might be a hot take, but you know, within reason, I think they're very easy to maintain. And it's just something that brings me a lot of joy and, you know, ultimately adds a bit to my Zoom background every day. What is your favorite place you've ever been to? When I worked in Tel Aviv, I'd say that that was my, you know, like the best experience I've ever had the tech ecosystem there is just so tight-knit you know i felt like you know i'd go to networking events and it felt like i knew the entire room and it was really just a place where i felt that you could take risks in a very you know without necessarily putting too much you know risk at stake what is your favorite brand my favorite brand, I have a few favorite brands, but I think, you know, when it comes to headphones, I love Bang & Olufsen. They make beautiful products. Uh, I'm listening to Bang & Olufsen headphones right now. You know, I've been trying to get a sponsored brand deal with them for a few years now. So hopefully that's in the pipeline. And then in terms of coffee, like I love Seiko coffee machines. They just, they make quality products. These things can go for 30, 40,000 cups before really needing any major service. And I just find a lot of the coffee that people drink nowadays is just, it isn't necessarily the most flavorful. And I know Seiko makes quality machines that, you know, can consistently produce a great cup of joe. I got to check them out. And my last question for you is, what advice would you give to someone looking to build their own influence, whether that is in the business or influencer world? I would say don't hesitate on reaching out. Like the amount of relationships I've established just from a cold email or even, you know, like following up to a cold email, you know, oftentimes, you know, if you send out a cold response, you're not going to get a message. And I've said this previously, but like, persistence is key to success. And I always tell creators I work with, you know, if a brand doesn't respond right away, keep on messaging them. You know, you want to be top of inbox at all time. You want to be persistent without being annoying. That, you know, that's a caveat to it, but really just always keep on following up. And until somebody says, you know, I've had enough of this or has given you a definitive no, then keep on following up because it just means that you haven't got that definitive no yet. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. I think you've had Quite an adventure from, you know, selling toys uh, at recess to Silver Guy Sells to now actually recently starting an influencer marketing company that was acquired. So I think there's a lot there for people to learn from. And I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much, Aaron, for having me. And you know, hopefully I could be helpful to other guests and other people listening to this. If anybody's listening to the podcast, feel free to reach out. My name's Adam Silverman on LinkedIn, and that's the best place to reach out. And that was Hunting Influence. To find out more about Influence Hunter and how we source micro and nano influencers to exponentially grow the reach of your brand, visit influencehunter.com. 
And then make sure to search for Hunting Influence in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Influence Hunter, thanks for listening.